This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 100. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's topic, can you limit the duration of an opponent's deposition even before it starts? Yes, you can. Well, hello, litigators. I hope you're having a fantastic week and annihilating the bad guys in your depositions. We talked in a recent episode about requests to extend the length of depositions when you're in a jurisdiction or a court system that imposes durational limits on depositions. So the next logical question is, can you move to shorten an opponent's depot of your client or of a non-party witness before it even begins? The short answer is yes, you can. And I would also tell you that anecdotally from a review of the case law on this topic, that courts consistently approve such requests when they are well-founded. Now, we're not talking about terminating a deposition once it's underway. You obviously have the ability to do that if the examination in some way has become oppressive, abusive, or harassing. And in those circumstances, it doesn't really matter if the deponent is your client, someone else's client, or a non-party unrepresented witness. So the federal rules and most state court rules specifically say that a party or a deponent can move to terminate or limit a deposition in progress on the grounds that it's being conducted in bad faith or in a manner that unreasonably annoys, embarrasses, or oppresses the deponent or party. So if a deposition is clearly going haywire, uh, you have the authority as counsel for any party to the case or as counsel for the witness to stop it and seek a protective order. So that's the way to shorten a deposition that has gone off the rails after the deposition has begun. But maybe you're facing or will face a situation where there's a better way to do this, where you shouldn't wait until a deposition has become abusive or harassing to seek court intervention. And that's really what we're talking about today. Today, it's about taking steps in advance, asking a court to impose a time limit on how long the noticing party can conduct an examination of a witness, whether it's your client, uh, someone else's client, or an unrepresented non-party deponent. And this would involve either filing a motion for a protective order, asking the court to limit the duration to whatever time you think is justified, or if the deponent was subpoenaed, filing a motion to modify the subpoena in order to impose time limits. Some lawyers are not aware that the options for reining in an excessive subpoena go beyond just a motion to quash, and also include a motion to modify the subpoena in the event the subpoena is likely to cause undue burden, oppression, or harassment. So it's an appropriate step to take when you reasonably believe that a deponent, for example, has limited knowledge, and that in the absence of an order confining the examination to a time certain, the witness is likely to be subjected to, again, the catchphrase is annoyance, embarrassment, bad faith, or oppression. Now, we know that most jurisdictions have no time limit on the length of depositions. And that obviously didn't mean that the drafters of the rules intended that depositions go on for as long as an examining lawyer can think of anything to ask. Now, the federal rules do limit the duration of depositions to seven hours. But again, that wasn't a sign by the drafters that depositions can and should take seven hours. As the court noted in the Forte case in the show notes, quote, there is nothing in the federal rules of civil procedure or case law that legitimizes taking the full seven hours to depose a person 
when there's no purpose for it, end quote. All right, so when might you want to file a motion to either limit a deposition or to modify a subpoena for that purpose? Here's a, a random list. Apex witnesses, heads of companies, heads of organizations that highly likely had a limited role in whatever the dispute is at issue in the case. When the witness is elderly, when the witness is a privilege-bearing witness, when the witness is a spouse or a family member of a party in the case where you suspect that the noticing lawyer intends to try to create some damage in the relationship through the examination, where the deponent is a mediator or a treating physician or an accountant or a fact witness who will also be produced as a 30B6 witness. All right, so let's talk about the source of your authority for seeking an order in advance of a deposition to limit its duration. It's not Rule 30, the main federal deposition rule, and it's not going to be the chief deposition rule in your jurisdiction, in your state court jurisdiction. Those rules typically apply to depositions in progress, and in fact, typically start with the language, quote, at any time during a deposition, etc., etc. Or in the case of many state court rules, something very similar, like at any time during the taking of a deposition, same basic concept. The rule that you're going to chiefly rely on to time limit an opponent's deposition in advance is the rule in your jurisdiction for protective orders. So let's take a look first at Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26 and specifically Section 26B2, which is titled Limitations on Frequency and Extent. And subsection A says, and I'm quoting in part, uh, by order, the court may alter the length of depositions under Rule 30. So that's 26B2A. The same rule, 26, uh, contains another subsection, C1, which similarly authorizes a court for good cause shown to issue an order to protect a party or a person from annoyance, embarrassment, oppression, undue burden. And that rule contains quite a bit of additional language that authorizes a court to configure discovery in whatever manner will get the job done without causing undue burden or harassment to the parties or to any deponent. So chiefly, look to the rule in your jurisdiction on protective orders. If you're in federal court or if you are in one of the supermajority of state jurisdictions that follow the state court rules, that's going to be the source of your authority. Now, if the deponent has been issued a subpoena, you can also look to the rule governing subpoenas, state or federal. For example, the federal subpoena rule, Rule 45, has two provisions that you can cite if the witness has been issued a subpoena that doesn't expressly and appropriately limit the length of the deposition and you feel some time limit ought to be imposed. Most deposition subpoenas contain generic language along the lines of it'll start at such and such a date and time and the examination will continue from day to day until completed. Mm, no, thank you. So Rule 45D, which is actually titled, the subtitle is Protecting a Person Subject to a Subpoena, says that a party or attorney responsible for issuing and serving a subpoena must take reasonable steps to avoid imposing undue burden. And the next sentence says that a court in the district where compliance is required, where the deposition is going to take place, must enforce this duty to avoid undue burden. That's 45D1. All right, 45D3, which is titled Quashing or Modifying a Subpoena, says that on timely motion, the court for the district where compliance is required must quash 
or modify a subpoena that subjects a person to undue burden. That's subsection four. So those are the tools you'll use, state or federal, to ask a court to impose a time limit on a deposition when you have legitimate grounds for doing so. Again, it's going to be your jurisdiction's rules of civil procedure on protective orders and, as appropriate, the subpoena rule that authorizes a court to protect deponents from undue burden, including by modifying the subpoena rather than quashing it. And as I mentioned at the outset, courts appear to be quite willing to time limit a deposition when you've got a good faith basis for doing so. All right, so what's going to be the legal standard by which your request will be judged? Well, the rule on protective orders, Rule 26 in the federal system, says that a court can impose limits for good cause shown. The Forte decision I mentioned a minute ago in the show notes has some language in it that also says that a court will be called on in each case to make a fact-intensive inquiry. All right, let's talk about some practical guidance, uh, whether you are moving to limit the deposition or opposing such a motion, and then we'll wrap up. All right, first, if you're moving to limit the duration of an adversary's deposition, you've got to stuff your motion with facts explaining why the deposition should be limited. Talk about who the witness is, how they're connected to the case, what they know or what they don't know. Next, consider talking about the prior history of the parties or the relationship of the noticing lawyer to the witness that suggests that this deposition is likely to be abusive. If possible, I recommend that you get together an affidavit from the proposed deponent outlining exactly what the witness knows on pertinent topics and what the witness doesn't know. If it's a 30B6 deposition and individual fact witnesses have already covered all of the topics, argue that the topic list is an exercise in duplication and undue burden. Also, remember to check to see if there's anything in your local rules, state or federal, uh, that require the noticing party to notify deponents of the anticipated length of the deposition. I see that in a few jurisdictions, typically when the deponent is going to be someone like a physician. Next pointer, once you get a notice for a deposition that you feel should be time limited, reach out to the noticing lawyer and ask him or her to explicitly commit to a duration on the deposition. Get a commitment. If you can't get a commitment, then you know there may be an issue. Remember also that it's the notice that's issued pertaining to the deposition that almost always controls how the deposition will proceed. So if a resulting notice after you think you've gotten a commitment from the noticing lawyer still says that the examination will continue from day to day with no agreed limit, then you've got to consider whether the opposing lawyer, the one that issued the notice, is somebody that you believe will abide by your informal agreement or stipulation or whether you need to get an actual court order in advance. In one case in the show notes, Higginbotham, a situation kind of like that popped up where one of the lawyers seemed to think there was agreement on the duration of the deposition. The other lawyer clearly did not. It's a good opinion to look at if you'd like to get a feel for how a dispute on this issue can arise, what happens when the understanding between the lawyers or the alleged understanding is disputed, and what a court has to say about it. So in the Higginbotham case, one might say from reading the opinion that the plaintiff's lawyer had not quite agreed to a limit on depositions, despite being asked to do so. 
So the court said that the defense lawyer in that situation, quote, had a good and lawful option in response to the defense lawyer's intransigence, close quote. So the court goes on to say, referring to this dispute over a treating physician's deposition, that, quote, in the absence of a clear indication from plaintiff's counsel that he would limit the duration of the deposition to one hour, defense counsel could have and should have filed a motion to modify the subpoena and to limit the duration of the deposition, end quote. All right, let's take it from the other side. Suppose you are facing a motion to time limit a deposition that you've noticed. Well, obviously, you need to be mindful that you're probably now going to have to explain why you either need unlimited time, no cap whatsoever, or if you're in federal court, why you need the full seven hours. All right, as for additional tips, well, first, consider the tips we just covered for the movement and consider how you might rebut each one of those or flip them to your benefit. Next point, argue that the rules already provide for a basis for a lawyer to terminate a deposition midstream if the examination is truly abusive and argue that the movement is asking for a limit in advance precisely because they know they're not going to be able to show midstream that there's a legitimate basis of any kind to terminate the deposition. Point out, if applicable, that you're going to need to review a substantial number of documents with the deponents and so for this reason, depending on how quickly you're able to work through each document with the witness, there's simply no basis to impose a cap ahead of time. Next point, consider arguing the principle that as a general rule, parties seeking discovery are allowed to test a claimed lack of knowledge. That's a quote from the Coleman case in the show notes. So the mere fact that an opposing lawyer is making unsworn representations, especially if there's no accompanying affidavit, that the witness doesn't know anything should not be a basis to thwart the discovery or to otherwise limit it in advance. All right, next point. If you're seeking a 30B6 deposition and the adversary says, well, judge, uh, he or she's already deposed multiple fact witnesses that are just going to say the same thing, consider using the transcripts to show that the information you got from the individual witnesses was not actually provided, that their testimony wasn't on point, and that the testimony argued now as cumulative doesn't adequately respond to the corresponding topics of inquiry. That's the Arctic Cat case in the show notes. The court there denied a defense motion to limit the corporate rep deposition to three and a half hours by essentially saying just that, that the record before the court did not show that the 30B6 topics would duplicate what the fact witnesses had already testified to. And finally, argue if applicable, that other depositions have already been conducted and at no time was there even a hint that the examination was conducted in a burdensome or oppressive way and that the court ought to let things be. Finally, for both sides in this kind of dispute, it's good to think about this as far in advance as possible. Some jurisdictions require parties to submit planning reports that detail the discovery needs of the parties. Further, some courts, including some federal judges, actually require the lawyers in the planning report or scheduling report to identify deponents by name that are anticipated uh, in the case. So if your scheduling or planning report addresses the issue of depositions, and especially if it also requires the deponents to be identified by name, uh, that's probably the time to raise the issue of limiting the duration 
of specific depositions. Otherwise, your adversary may argue, or the judge may independently conclude, that you knew about this witness long before you filed the motion and requested no time limit whatsoever. At that point, the adversary may well argue that there's some other motive for seeking to limit the duration of the deposition. So this is something to think about as you're mapping out your discovery plan and particularly your plan for taking and defending depositions. All right, that's it for today. As always, thank you so much for listening and be sure to check out the book on which this podcast is based, 10,000 Depositions Later, The Premier Litigation Guide for Superior Deposition Practice, now in its third edition at 450 pages and available just about everywhere you get your books. Thank you again, and we'll talk to you again next time.